Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the Product Artisan Podcast. My name is Rajesh and I'm your host. With me today, I have an exciting guest. Amit Goel is a product leader, an entrepreneur and a specialist in the ad tech and content industry who has worked for many years across different trajectories of companies from established product companies to scale-ups, to startups, besides founding his own company. And he has lived and worked in multiple countries as well. Amit is also a prolific writer and blogger. Amit, welcome to the Product Artisan Podcast. Thank you, Rajesh. It's a pleasure to be here and talking to you today. Yeah, great. This is special episode for me because we, we have somebody who's a deep domain specialist. Uh, Amit, you've been in the content and ad tech industry for a very long time. And a lot of, I would say, innovation comes from that industry first. And then that kind of gets propagated to the rest of the other industries, right? At least that's been my learning. So super excited to have you with us today. So I noticed you are currently leading product for Trade Desk in your Asia Pack role. Where would you like to start first? I mean, would you like to start from the beginning of your journey in terms of how you got into ad tech content management or how would you like to start this journey? Yeah, quite easy. I think let me give you a 30 second update on how my career trajectory went through from the beginning. Like all other guys in India, I started a career as a software engineer, writing code, developing various applications and one. And then in 2005, I joined a company called NDS. That's where I entered content industry. So NDS was one of the world leading pay TV companies that got acquired by Cisco in 2012. In that company, I worked on set-top box domain. During that time, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team that launched Tata Sky and Airtel in India. I'm talking about Airtel TV. And then I worked in NDS as a, one of the team leads for new initiatives group. The term product manager was not so prevalent at that time. So I was called a team manager. I was leading a team, but my role was mostly product manager. So I was leading this team building products for, which are like generational shift. Like our goal was to build products, which is five to seven years down the line, will change the industry. That is where I came across advertising. And we built, uh, started building contextual advertising for set-top boxes and then pay TV world. Then in 2012, when the company got acquired, I just cashed out and, and then focused on my own startup called Patterbus. It was again into content domain. It was, I was trying to be democratizing the content on magazines. So instead of paying for the whole magazine, like hundred bucks for a magazine, why, why don't you just pay for article, what you read and pay as you go model, enable content discovery and things like that on a digital platform. And basically ended up digitizing a lot of magazine content. Beyond that, then I moved on to a bunch of startups and then ended up with a company called Amagi uh, in 2017. Amagi was a startup back then. Right now it's a couple of billion dollars unicorn kind of scenario, uh, internationally famous. So I was one of the first product managers at Amagi building their server-side admin system systems in ad tech domain. That's where I came across Trade Desk. And then I joined Trade Desk to lead their Asia-Pacific product and plus retail media. So my journey has been into mostly content and, and media space. And ad tech happened over the way because ads and content go hand in hand. They can't be separated. And this is a terrific journey, right? Because you've gone from... A lot of zero to one journeys, you've gone from building small to multi-million dollar products at these companies. So let me start with NDS. And I have a little bit of history there as well. I used to work with Scientific Atlanta, set-top boxes and encoders and all of their video infrastructure through my uh, career at Verizon. So, so I'm well acclimated with that space. So tell me a little bit about kind of the product building experience at NDS, right? Was it mostly about delivering a broadcast video uh, over the top 
Was it trying to stitch things together? Can you tell us a little bit more about the product journey at uh, NDS? NDS was a global name. They were a big multinational at that point in time too. So NDS was a majorly a broadcast-oriented company, a satellite TV company, trying to figure out how the set-top boxes will work and then introducing DVRs, like how recordings can happen on set-top boxes. And majorly, if you look at NDS core business, they were more about security. So how to secure the content. So they were one of the leading companies into pay TV where they introduced smart cards. If you open your Tata Sky box today, I'm not sure how many people have Tata Sky because of OTT and I'll come to OTT in a second. So NDS has the smart card in the box, which was protecting the content. It was a billion, multi-billion dollar industry for protecting content as content used to be stolen in 90s and early 2000s. So I came across OTT at NDS around 2008, 2009, when this whole AWS cloud happened. I got, I was fortunate enough to work in cloud environment very early uh, on when it had only a few services, maybe RDS, S3, and a couple of them more. And we thought that in future, when streaming will happen, Netflix was just beginning to start up. When I say it started in the terms of streaming, and we thought like once transition from set-top boxes to OTT will happen, there'll be a lot more changes in security business of how to protect content and all. So I came across OTT at NDS2 in around 2009, when we started building on putting TV on the cloud. And then we said was, it was not called OTT as such, it was called TV on the cloud. Let's build developer platform for app developers. If there is a platform like that for tele- television app developers, there was nothing like app stores for television apps as such. So we started building those concepts and across that, when we said, like when we, people watch TV, they not only watch TV, they were holding devices in their hand, typically iPhones at that time or Android phones. So it was called second screen device experience that what people watch on TV at the same time, they're using second screen devices. So the content is also happening on the second screen. Can we connect the two and actually make content more relevant for them? putting both together. So that's how my end journey was, looking at both broadcast and OTT at the same time. It was an amalgamation of two kind of streams, which were too disconnected at that one time. Yeah, and, and for listeners, NDS was a global video broadcast company that then got later acquired by Cisco, right? It became uh, Cisco NDS, and then is now currently called Cinemedia. So that's the naming for you. So it's interesting, Amit, in this kind of journey you talked about, right? You talked about the evolution of broadcast video needing to go online. It still wasn't called OTT. You talked about the need for content security and protection. And then you talked about set-up boxes, which is basically the distribution channel or mechanism, if you will, right? What are some of the major challenges that you faced in building in this space? Content, in my experience, comes with a lot of restrictions in terms of who can access it, what you can do with it how it lends itself to various formats. Again, this is back in the day, not today, right? Where somebody with an iPhone can edit, make movies, uh, and have that posted on um, YouTube in a jiffy. Uh, this is back in those days. And and so content, video content itself is difficult as a format to work with. And then who has access to it in terms of rights and restrictions, right? Privileges and entitlements. And then you had this, what you called out, which was this cloud kind of evolution, right? With AWS and others coming on top. So what were some of the challenges that you and the leadership faced, right? While building this? I think one of the biggest challenges was the sheer size and scale of content. If you look at the content production life cycle, the actual content produced is like, it's like the formats like MXF. It's like terabytes of content. One movie can be like a terabyte or so. It's a, it's a real raw content, which is coming up. This is the quality what people get to see. 
Now, keeping the same quality in the internet world is really challenging. So transcoding became the huge piece for everything. And getting this content published, stored, processed in a speed, it was very challenging all the time. People keep on solving that problem still as to date. Like even if you go to the latest world, let's say you watch a movie on Netflix, I'm sure Netflix has a huge complex architecture of how they store content, how they process it, make sure that it is suitable to multiple devices. And now these days it's hundreds of devices. At that point in time, it was maybe a few like a few Android phones and then iPhone, iPads were coming up. So these devices was a challenge. Content processing was a huge challenge at a speed and processing power became challenging. So because everything related to and trans, translated to, to a high cost environment. So cloud was being adopted saying, hey, we need this, but can it be cheaper? So there was always a challenge between like, can we host a data center of uh, our own or should we move to cloud? So we started fighting on architectures like what should go to the cloud? What should go to the data center? And those decision making was too challenging anyway. Yeah. And your primary customers were these broadcast or digital TV providers, right? You you mentioned Tata, Sky, and a few others. I don't know if there are others uh, across the globe who are your customers, right? In in Europe and the in the US. Were you also going direct to consumers at that time, or was your distribution was predominantly to these broadcast and TV companies? It was to the TV companies. Basically, we were a technology provider. So we built the whole tech end to end. So essentially, when you see in the set-top box in the old world, everyone who had a set-top box at hand, it was supported by NDS. It was built by manufacturers. And just put the whole software as security into it with some design changes into hardware. So we were providing the whole broadcast technology to companies like DirecTV, B-SkyB, Airtel, Sky. And uh, how did you guys go through pricing in those days? How was pricing kind of done? I mean, these are very large customers you're talking about with enormous pricing power. They're probably monopolies in their own markets. So how did you end up pricing your products? So in our case, so I was not part of the pricing team anyway, but NDS priced based on the smart card proliferation. Basically, they're looking at how the software has been costed. It is a complete B2B model and built the whole chunk of software for them. There was a huge million dollars of upfront pricing done for providing the software. And then there was a, you can call it as a, a usage model or a smart card royalty, you can call it. That we got a royalty on every smart card being sold in the market. And one smart card means one set of box. So if Tata Sky reached 10 million people, maybe we got 50 cents per box on a, on a recurring basis. And plus yeah. there was always uh, upfront cost of building software, which was running to billions and billions of dollars. Okay, Those were old school models at that time. Of course. So this was, there was an upfront yeah. cost in terms of platform or subscription. And then there was a royalty in terms of, if I may call it usage-based growth, wherein as your customers deployed a number of set-top boxes, they would pay back royalty to you, right? So that was the model. And then from then on, you mentioned a very successful exit with NDS post the acquisition by Cisco. And then your startup journey, right? I should say entrepreneur journey started with Paterbus. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So I started Paterbus with the mindset of that, hey, we should be democratizing content. Like this whole content in magazine or print industry was either you buy everything or you don't get anything. My personal experience also was that I read only a few articles, typically how people buy magazines. They read a cover story or a couple of more. And then we ended up paying a lot of money for that. And especially even with the other content providers who were in the same domain, they were actually selling PDFs. And now PDFs are not easily searchable. They were like not discoverable. All, all that was happening. So I thought 
I came across an app called Flipboard at that one time in the US. And Flipboard was doing very well, but Flipboard was all across the US and a lot of free content was there. And I come from a paid content background and I always believe that content should be paid for. As you can see today, like most of the publishers have put paywalls as of today. Like if you go to New York Times or Wall Street or even Indian publishers, they're putting paywalls. So I was trying to build a paywall for the content industry at the same time democratizing them into making what content people want to read only pay for that. So I launched Patrobus with an idea like pay for what you read. And that was an amazing journey to be talked about. Yeah. So was this product built and launched for the India market? Was it a, a, a global market? And who are your initial set of customers? It was built for India market. I launched with a few publishers. Actually, publishers really wanted this. A bunch of them reached out to me that they wanted to be partners on the platform. Like there were magazines like Popular Science and then one of the first magazines that went on board with this was Linux for You and Electronics for You, one of the most popular electronics and software magazines. So all these publishers became partners, and I was not helping only to monetize content. I was actually helping them to digitize content. Believe it or not, the content was not 100% digitized. They were lying in the hardware of graphic designers and things like that. So challenge which I faced in Patrobras was I was trying to think that when I started the company that it is just monetization and build models into it. But then I had to first challenge was like, hey, this content is not even digital in such true form of digital thing. I need to digitize it so that it is discoverable on the internet. So for example, there was a political magazine we had on board. And one of the key selling piece was that if people were searching Narendra Modi, election time was coming out like 2000, for, before 2014. So if someone is searching Narendra Modi, they can't find articles or cover stories written by this magazine on the internet until they search the magazine name. So for example, the magazine was, I think, called Hard News. And if someone searched Hard News, then they can find the magazine. But no one knew the name of the magazine. So I made the content digitized in such a format that it can be discoverable. Once people discover, they can read a bite about it. And then if they want to read the whole long form narrative version of it, they pay just a rupee. And the second challenge was obviously the payments. Okay. So sounds again, very interesting, exciting, right? In terms of, you talked about your journey in terms of one is democratizing access to the content and, and second is helping magazine publishers and content publishers make some revenue out of it, right? Making it more accessible. India is a very fragmented market. It's heterogeneous. There's a lot of languages. There's a lot of dialects, et cetera, that come into play. Did you run into any challenges in terms of that? Or did you just pick English as your main content or language medium for your platform? Yeah, so I picked English as a main language. Typically, English publishers are the ones who are adopting technology a bit more faster than the vernacular ones. Unlike today, like vernacular is completely digital too. In those days, I'm just talking about 10 years ago, it's not even too far away. But in 10 years ago, vernaculars were not even reachable or thinking about digital too much. And with the phones in hand, they were still thinking that people who read English are the ones who are going towards reading online on, on devices. So my approach was English first on that scenario. Yeah, this is early days of mobile, right? 3G, 4G penetration. We're talking 2012, 2015. So we're catering to desktops, mobile, both. Where did you find your audience engaging? Oh, Android phones. Those are the best ones. Android phones work magically. So initially when we started building, coming from a background of multinationals and working internationally, I was also thinking like, hey, India also is latching onto iPhones and then iPad was launched. But the learning was that India was latching onto Android a lot more. And that's where I, one of the first learning was that India will be the mobile first country all the time. I did build a desktop app, uh, and I say desktop app, it's a website, but the traffic was major different from Android a lot. In terms of demographics, were you 
catering to specific demographics do you want your to cities young readers or more mature readers what were you going after just the two demographics which we focused on it was not about the cities actually but it was more about the mature readers they were coming in so either we had students who were studying and because we had a lot of magazines coming from the educational world or the next set of readers were mostly about political and kind of content which was happening on in those days so a lot of political magazines were on the platform so we targeted a lot more mature readers that's mostly they were like i i think 35 plus people 30 35 plus okay and how did you kind of exit this and move to your next uh, career goal how did you how did you kind of make that decision that was a hard decision i think the business as a concept did well we had a huge interest from partners publishers the users were interested unfortunately the market was not right for a paywall to be put up for content everyone expected free content the challenge was publishers wanted a lot more money for the content so it's like i value my content much higher than the others versus users were not ready for, to pay that premium on the content so getting the right mix and the right balance on the pricing was hard second i had to shut down simply because i could not raise the next level of funds if i build that business today i think funds will happen much faster because this have become so common but putting a paywall on our content was not a anticipated or a expected phenomena at that point in time so fundraising was a big of a problem by for my startup so at that yeah. point in time it was a hard decision but then i had to take that call to shut it down yeah w- one of the interesting things uh, when i look at your career is mm-hmm. how you've kind of seamlessly gone back and forth between startup and working with more established product companies it's not an easy transition or switch to make uh, either way right so i'm sure there are a lot of lessons you learned from kind of this experience right and, and the next stop for you was nolarity right what is the biggest lesson or experience from your startup uh, that you could draw upon and let's say apply it at nolarity or any of the other product roles you know post that so was there something that you could do or there are two completely different kind of worlds that they don't necessarily intersect or overlap no i i think you can apply a base fundamental philosophy at least from my perspective is like when you're building a product if you are thinking about a long term vision building product for the long term but at the same time you can balance the short term needs of the company i think this is a very very hard balance to achieve for any product person so any company whether it's a multinational let's say billions of dollars and or a startup which is just looking at a first million dollar revenue both of them need to serve some kind of short term interest and while keeping their eye on the long term vision that they don't deviate from the vision this balance is hard and at that time working with the leadership to help them navigate this path is the key to success i feel that so what i could achieve between my journey at large companies or startups or even my own was how do i look at the vision and then keep on deviating from the path a bit to achieve revenue targets while at the same time building the product in the right direction i, I think that helped me focus a lot and shuttle between the startups and and, and their enterprises great so how did you kind of move from there on right so nolarity and then amagi which is a, a huge unicorn startup and they're doing really well so what was that journey like for your next phase so moving on from nolarity when i joined amagi amagi was a startup it was pretty doing well at that scale but they were looking for a product manager who can help them like a product from a prototype or a early stage to a million dollar revenue and amagi was also going international at the same time they had this product being built up called server side ad insertion which means that uh, typically when you see uh, let me give an example uh, if you're watching a 
live movie on streaming on the internet and you see ad breaks coming up this all ad breaks can be dynamically targeted towards each person so if you and someone else is watching the same program at the same time you will see two different video ads in a content so server side ad insertion took this whole ad delivery business onto servers compared to what youtube did as a client side insertion which was being harmed by ad blockers so amagi was building this product on server side ad insertion and i joined their team as an opportunity to see a product going from zero to a multi million dollar scale internationally so when we were building this product actually we launched it in the us and we got customers like and, and samsung and likes of them who were really interested in this technology so that took me to amagi to build a product which was really new a complete new technology a new innovation using a lot of ml behind the scenes and was this i know there's a content aspect to it and there's an advertising aspect to it right specifically kind of your role you were building more on the yamaging advertising portfolio and building the ad products yes. which you could then provide to these customers for them to create and launch their own products right that's good okay could you tell us a little bit more like how did you kind of work through regulations data privacy etc from an ad yeah. perspective i think if you talk to other product managers in this space uh, they will always say hey data privacy is always a challenge and regulations keep on playing so in the last 5 years privacy laws have evolved a lot so when i started working on this product at amagi we came across gdpr for the first time i think gdpr has started evolving and it was like sitting in india working in the office and figuring out gdpr was hard so we started engaging with lawyers in the year to understand it uh, along with our lawyers in india gdpr directions are not clear so we started playing safe that when you don't understand play safe on the data privacy space and then when we build the product at that point in time one of the clear direction to the engineers and as a product manager i also had was make sure privacy is a part of every requirement that not no point in time you should be having any kind of architecture done which is violating privacy the data flows pipelines should be very clean where the data is stored how the data is stored how it is managed including content rights everything has to be really really thought through in detail which of course slowed down the product development a bit but it was mandatory at the same time we got ccpa coming in which is california privacy act and slowly all over the world the privacy acts were rising up so making a global product same product working across different countries became a challenge because as privacy laws were evolving everyone had a different condition coming up so so we started building products in such a way that when we deploy in different regions they are conforming to the privacy laws too so it definitely privacy has been a challenge in this space and as you go and think about the recent introductions with google coming up with privacy sandbox that's a biggest game changer for the ad tech industry now okay and did you as part of your advertising uh, suite right what kind of roi or return on ad spend that you had to showcase to your customers right and i'm sure that there would have to be analytics and insights capabilities that you would have to build did you build that out of the box was that something they had to integrate just trying to understand how your customers would see the roi so i have worked with both the supply side and the demand side in my last role at trade desk i was on the demand side but coming first to Omagi which was supply side business i worked with publishers like roku's and samsung's who were publishing content on the internet and monetizing it so when we were providing the technology with them they also asked for a lot more insights and data now if you look at the publishing world or the streaming world it has evolved a lot in the last 5 years 2017 or 18 ctv was not even a 
big deal, but it started becoming a big deal uh, around 2018 and 19. So publishers actually invested a lot more. They started asking a lot more data. As we generated data, for example, there are millions of people who are watching content all at the same time. So we are collecting every signal. People click what they do, what scene they watch, every single data point is being collected. So there was nothing like analytics could be built out of the box. So we had to invest a lot in building an analytical system. So we could actually see that what program is being watched, how many ads do this program are being then being watched, who completed that, who did not complete that. So basically the probabilistic data coming out of it and then showing number of impressions, number of people who see the ads completely, number of people who see only 15 seconds of ads. And based on all this, publishers were taking calls on what the pricing of the ad slot can be, what is the most popular program kind of stuff. We built for the system, but what we took care was that when we gave this product to the publishers, they could log into a UI and then see, hey, this is my data. And then, of course, if they had to launch a new channel, let's say you want to launch a new TV channel, we just gave them plug and play workflows to say, plug in your URL here, and then your channel will be live with advertising and where the how the advertising workflow will be. So we made it easier for the publishers, but took all the workload in at the back to simplify it for them. So what is the secret to Amagi's success, right? Obviously, building products in the right space at the right time, when I compare it to your earlier comments about NDS and even your startup, your OTT was kind of booming, right? Netflix and others, you were catering to the market in the US, which is the largest market in terms of video consumption. So it looks like a lot of things were right, but I'm sure there were a lot of competitors as well. For Amagi, from a product leader perspective, what were the two or three things that perhaps you got right that maybe some of your competitors didn't or that really kind of helped you become this household name? One of the best things Amagi did was the founders were really persistent in their thought process, in their vision that this is going to change the game. So why, when we started working with the publishers, we did not consider that we have to go with hundreds of publishers at the same time because the market was new. The publishers were also learning. So what we became was not only a product company for them or a technology provider for them, what we also gave, became was like how to provide expertise to them, how to actually help them build the next thing. So we started learning from them. So when we started working with Roku, Roku is one of the biggest household names in the US, right? So Roku came back and said, hey, I think this is how the market will shape up. This is how streaming can change a bit more. So we started supporting them in and learning requirements from them one by one. And same thing happened with Samsung. So we started building in a B2B model but not looking at a generalization of a product. Uh, but we all started looking at step-by-step approach of a product vision. The second was, of course, I guess I call it persistence. I think the market is slow. If you look at the whole content industry, they don't change very often. While they're very innovative, but it's a very slow moving industry. So being persistent there and pushing one customer at a time was a key to Magi's success too. So when we were building products, making changes to our product roadmap, we accommodated each and every customer who was aligning to our vision. Of course, we did some customizations to the product and customizations are always helpful in B2B business. So that helped Amagi sustain the initial two and three years where the market was just itself into the streaming world. And then once that happened, Amagi was getting popular in the US market with customers actually referring to others that maybe you should work with Amagi. And this is how Amagi cracked in. And tell us a little bit about scale, right? Because I, I can't think of very many startups that have built products to this scale, right? You're talking about billion plus ad requests per month. Was that something you, you thoughtfully designed from the ground up? Or was it something you had to kind of scale as you built out? Talk to us a little bit more about scaling and capacity. Yeah. So uh, I think one of the 
key differences in, in the general SaaS products or, or ad tech or media products is the scale and concurrency. These two things play a huge role. Just to give an example, if you look at today's claim of Hotstar or Geo, what they're saying is like there are 50 million viewers at the same time watching a cricket match. That concurrency on OTT is not easy to achieve. So when we started building out Amagi's service and administration product, which is called Thunderstorm, there were already debates that what the skill should be in the first go. When the first ad request came in and we served the one ad, you were actually jubilant that, hey, we served one ad request from our system. But scaling to billions of ad requests was not easy. So what we did not do was that we built to billion on day one. That's kind of impossible. And I'll not, I'll not say it's advisable too. So we started saying that our first goal is to achieve 10 million ad requests. And it was not concurrent. We were looking at concurrency of 100,000 at that point in time and estimating that what kind of pipeline we have in the user base or what kind of customers we will get. And then we will look at scaling. So we started looking at 100,000 first. And then once we touched 100,000, the next million came very fast. And from the million, then we actually knew exactly how it's going to scale up because then architectures were evolving at point in time. Then we just suddenly blew up from a million to 100 million or so. Yeah. Every million, the architecture changes quite significantly in the initial period of time. And first million and the first 10 million are very important. And then after 10 million to 100 million, the architecture will completely evolve again. Yeah. And you move from there to Trade Desk. And I, I think around this time, you and I talked about data clean rooms. You introduced me to this concept of data clean rooms. It was the first time I heard about it. There was this whole discussion about first party with data and third-party data and the, the whole cookie, Google's policies around cookies and et cetera, right? Did that kind of play a role in you kind of moving to Trade Desk and Trade Desk talking about how independent they were and did that charter kind of attract you or motivate you to move Desk? So Trade Desk is one of the most attractive companies to work for as of today, I can tell you. Trade Desk was one of the biggest names outside Google and Meta and Amazon ecosystem in the ad tech world. They grew up very quickly from as a startup to a large company. Right now, they're listed in NASDAQ 100 at that big scale. So they're one of the largest independent DSPs working with advertisers to help them serve ads over the open internet. The rest of the ecosystem is called, let's say Google and Meta, called Vault Gardens. They have their own publishers. They have their own everything. So that's why they're a Vault Garden. So Trade Desk was lucrative in that sense. Second, of course, the opportunities at Trade Desk were huge, are still huge. But so I joined them as a head of product for APAC, leading a lot more international market. I got the opportunity to see China very closely, how China is evolving. Not only traveling to China, but see how the China market changed is different from the rest of the world. When people say China is different, China is really different. We could see the impact on the product for that. And of course, leading global retail media work, which was happening and which is still happening, retail media as a first party data is evolving. And if you find the discussions on this whole cookie-less business, privacy-safe business, and Google launching privacy sandbox, first-party data is becoming key. That people who purchase things in retail stores or online, their data is a very, very high-quality, sacrosanct data, which can be related to advertising. So that's why this debate of first-party data has started happening in context of cookie-less world in the future. And so, I mean, those are some big names you mentioned there, right? So how did... Trade Desk kind of go head to head with Meta and Google, uh, which as you rightly pointed out, have their own kind of closed ecosystems, right? Did you have to build some product differentiation? Did you have to create something in the platform to make it more sticky for your customers? How did you kind of go about that? So Trade Desk philosophically has been always talking about the open internet. And what it means by open internet is that Google and Meta, they have their own closed ecosystems where they are the publishers, they own all the publishing properties, they own the advertising channels. So it's like one hat is selling to the another one. 
So of course they make money out of it. Traders always philosophically were saying that internet should be open. It should be accessible to all in terms of business and people should be, it should be fair and free for most of the people. So traders said we are a DSP as they are and we serve only advertisers. So we do not control the inventory. So it's not like we will buy the inventory and do arbitrage. So traders was very, very focused on just serving the advertisers as in the most relevant way to the end user so that the users are happy and also advertisers get the most bang for the buck. And that's the position we took. Basic product differentiations, like we had certain features built in, like bid factors, traders call them, uh, which was very, very different than Google TV360 uh, line items. So bid factors are more uh, multi, say machine learning based determination of uh, where an ad should go and what kind of quality should be assigned to it so that it will be more relevant to the user. So those are some basic fundamental differences were created in the platform. But more philosophically, traders always said that we will work with only the quality publishers, only the uh, the best of publishers and keeping it equal for everyone, which is not the proposition for Google or Meta. Yeah. And I have to ask this question because we, we live in the age of generative AI now, right? How much of role did AI play in what you built at TradeDesk? You hinted at this earlier and helped it perhaps as a differentiator vis-a-vis Meta and Google. I, I think even in go before TradeDesk in my role at Amagi, machine learning was a lot of AI which we use and it played a huge role. Uh, for example, using machine learning, we had to figure out where exactly a content should be cut that it doesn't disrupt a viewer in a scene. Let's say you're watching a movie and the suddenly a scene got cut to show an ad at a very, very unfavorable point in time when the movie was like someone is punching and the punch didn't get completed and, and the scene got cut. So we used machine learning and a bit of AI there to first figure out how the content should be processed and cut in such a way that ad breaks are introduced in the right place at the right amount of time. Then we used a lot of data analysis, which is machine learning for all of it, to figure out what ad should be placed. TradeDesk does a lot of it. TradeDesk is a data decisioning company. One of the key propositions of TradeDesk is that decisioning is a part of the whole advertising world. Every single ad request that comes in goes through a huge decisioning process. Without going into the details of it, ML algos which work behind the scenes to decide whether a user has to be served an ad or not. If yes, what ad to be served, what price to be discovered, and it is has to be competitive so that we can win it. At the same time, it cannot be too high or too low. So it's like we are finding for every cent, 12 million queries per second. So 12 million queries per second that traders happen and fight for every cent happen at this point in time. So if you have this kind of scale, of course, AI has played a huge role in building systems. Going forward, I'm sure generative AI is going to change a lot more direction. And does that present a competitive threat to the likes of trade desk? Can somebody who's much smaller come in and disrupt this with using generative AI and other technologies? I feel that AI is not a threat. AI is an opportunity for everyone, even in ad tech world. Of course, there is always a threat that someone small can come in and disrupt the whole industry. Uh, trade was a small one day and they disrupted the whole ad tech and Google was small one day. So disruption is, AI is a disruption can happen in, in parallel to AI. So while AI is adopted by trade desk, it can be adopted by anyone in different areas of ad tech. For example, generative AI can help increase. So when we do creative production today in advertising, an advertising house has to produce hundreds of creators. Now, I'm not sure if you have heard of this company called Personate.ai. They are a dairy-based company. I was recently engaging with them in some capacity. And then they are the one who launched something called AI Anchor. If you have seen those viral videos of AI Anchor Sana. So now what you can do is you can just put in a bunch of text and then a human, human-like human AI Anchor comes in and starts talking, right? So 
this kind of technology can help advertising industry and trade desk in general or anyone else in general to figure out what kind of creative processing can be done, produce those creatives at a much larger scale, much faster at the one-tenth of a cost. Now that takes away a huge human element of graphic design processing from advertising industry. Like advertisers spend a lot of money there. So generative AI can be really, really helpful in that scenario. And I think people are going towards it. We will also find AI being used in, in product placements where like when you're watching a movie, there's a company called Triple Lift. They have built this technology where when you watch a movie, let's say in a movie, the guy is holding a mug of coffee. Now, depending on the who's watching it, the mug of coffee can call it Starbucks or Costa or Dunkin' Donuts or whatever they want to call it. Dynamically, it can change based on who's watching the movie. Now, this is all is possible as the AI gets more and more useful. Yeah, sounds like there's a lot happening in that space and more. Switching gears a little bit, right? What I wanted to ask you is there are folks obviously building in the B2B SaaS space for enterprises. There are startups and companies building products for, for B2C, right? E-commerce is booming, ad tech, ad tech, fintech as well, right? What can somebody learn from your experience in, in, in this rich experience that you have across both ad tech content, right? And, and the media industry overall over the course of the decade plus what are some of those product lessons or product building lessons somebody can take and apply to some of these other more nascent industries? I think my learning is coming majorly from content and media industry and ad tech industry. But I see that the product fundamentals don't change across the world or across the companies. Product fundamentals are similar, except that you have to have a strong domain knowledge if it requires domain knowledge. So if you're building a sales tool, you might not need a too deep domain knowledge except how sales teams work. But if you're building, let's say, a fintech product for banking industry, you need to understand how banking works and where the gaps are in the industry. So in my experience in content and media, I think domain knowledge was one of the keys. Around with the domain knowledge, something came handy to me was technical knowledge. I was an engineer and I still write code sometimes. So while I not suggest product managers write code, I think having a huge technical understanding of the systems really helps in going the long way especially when you're dealing with complex systems, which are like scaling at high level, as I said, concurrency and scale of users, you need to look at technology too at the same time so that to understand product well, and that can be a differentiator too. But main fundamental principles, I can say three. One, if you're born to be a product leader, I think having your own opinion and more than having an opinion, projecting an opinion with the leadership, with everyone, and obviously with proof and with data and with some kind of instinct and talking about it and disagreeing with the people will really help in keeping the discussion honest. And this has to be done keeping the focus on the success of the product, not exactly thinking about your career anymore, but if the, how the product works. I think this open communication is very, very key. If a product manager gets subdued by, hey, because just because my manager is saying this or that, and I cannot talk about it and saying yes to everything, it might not help people in building right products at the right time. The second is, of course, I, as I mentioned earlier, is focusing on the long term, but having to balance the short term. That is absolutely important for our product. There is no product which will be successful on day one or achieve its vision. Products change directions and being flexible to change those directions, helping company to generate revenue and keeping the product afloat is the most important point. But Having the vision and maintaining that vision, and of course, letting go of certain clients, certain product requests, just because they're not aligned with the vision is also important. So balancing is the right term, I, I'll call it. And of course, the third one, I think keeping an eye on the disruption which is coming in the industry. 
if you are not well versed with the industry, what's coming up, products can be surprised that they are not relevant anymore. So being aware of the disruptions, being not only aware, but being participative in those discussions is also important at a global level. Yeah. Great. This is great, you know, feedback and, and advice. So Amit, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. So where do people find you? Uh, if they want to reach out to you, they want to learn from you. Uh, they can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm quite active on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is A-M-I-T-G-O-E-L-1287. Sorry, I call Twitter, it's X now. And or they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Okay, great. Amit, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and, and learning from uh, a such vertical expert in the product industry. Thanks again. Thank you so much for this. It's a pleasure talking to you.